Welcome to Therapeutic Perspective Podcast. Our mission is to bring you current mental health information directly relevant to your clinical practice through engaging interviews with varied specialty experts. My name is Shonda Morales. As a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in the Northeast for over two decades, I know how important continuing education is, not only for professional growth and burnout prevention, but for our own personal self-care and sense of empowerment as well. Therapeutic Perspective is a continuing education provider, so stay tuned until the end of the show to learn how you can obtain NBCC continuing education credit hours for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to Therapeutic Perspective Podcast. I am here with Dr. Carla Naumberg, who is a clinical social worker and mom. She's the author of five nonfiction books, including her, her international bestseller, How to Stop Losing Your Stuff, and she uses the other SH word that I'm not going to say, with your kids, as well as You Are Not a Terrible Parent, other also using the SH word, and the forthcoming How to Stop Freaking Out, the completely swear-free middle-grade ad- adaptation of How to Stop Losing Your Stuff with Your Kids. Carla's writing has appeared in a variety of online and print publications. She grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico and the Bay Area of California and currently lives outside of Boston with her husband and two daughters. So welcome, Carla. I'm so happy to have you here. Hi, Shonda. I'm really glad to join you. So tell us a little bit about who you are and the why behind your work. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you kind of nailed it in the bio. I'm a clinical social worker and a mom, and I am one of those moms whose life was kind of turned upside down when I became a parent. And I sort of rethought everything and rethought my life's work. Before I started writing parenting books, I worked in an inpatient psychiatric unit, working with folks, you know, with really severe and acute major mental illness. And I also worked in college counseling, which I totally loved. That's a great gig. Um, and once my daughters were born, I was finishing my doctorate in clinical social work and I knew that I couldn't work full time and work on a doctorate and have kids. So I scaled back on my clinical work and very quickly realized that parenting was pulling a lot of, um, chaos, pulling a lot of chaos out of me. Was that, is that how I want to say it? It was, (laughs) it was the hardest work I'd ever done. And it really called on me to do a lot of work around emotional stability and tolerance, which is a nice way to say not losing my mind with my children. (laughs) Um, And also self-compassion, which Mm -hmm. I have to say, I don't know what your experience was, but I have an undergraduate degree in psychology, a master's and a doctorate in social work. And I never heard anyone talking about self-compassion during all my training and in my early years of practice. And it wasn't until I started exploring the world of mindfulness really for my own benefit, so I could be calmer and more patient with my children, that I started learning about the practice and the research and the science behind self-compassion. And it's it's been a game changer for me. And I think it's really a practice that is crucial, not just for parents, but for clinicians in any mm. kind of practice, for ourselves and also to share with our clients and patients. 
Definitely. So, what? well, I'm not sure about you, but I went through grad school a long time ago and it definitely was not talked about. But I wonder if it's at all a part of it, of any of the curriculum now or we hear it now. And I, I'm not sure if you can speak to that or or maybe our listeners can, you know, tell us at some point. But um, I don't know. I'm sure it is more than it used to be just because it's such a crucial part of any mindfulness practice. And I do believe that mindfulness is thankfully, and I think appropriately sort of making its way into so many clinical training programs that I would really hope this compassionate approach would be a part of that. Right. And positive psychology, all of, all of that piece. So, right. Okay. Absolutely. That's, that's heartening for sure. (laughs) So, Great. You brought up uh, the the word self-compassion. So, you know, a lot of your work centers around this, especially this latest book that we'll be talking and focused more on. What is your definition of self-compassion? Because I think we all, you know, we use this word. What does that mean to you? How do you use that? Absolutely. So for me, self-compassion is just about noticing when we're suffering or struggling and responding to ourselves with kindness. Mm. And this sounds kind of basic and obvious, I think, but... I would argue that for so many of us, whether we're busy parents or busy students or busy practitioners, we kind of go through life um, responding to our own suffering and challenges, either by neglecting, ignoring, shutting it down, not paying attention to it, or by beating ourselves up when we make a mistake. So Mm -hmm. this book is specifically focused for parents, but I I think this is relevant to any of us, that we, we make a mistake, we screw something up, we forget something or break or drop or lose or say the wrong thing, or maybe have a clinical intervention with a client that doesn't work. And for so many of us, the gut reaction is to really beat ourselves up. I'm a terrible parent. I'm a terrible clinician. I'm Everybody is better at this than I am. I'm useless. I'm never going to be good at this. I'm never going to succeed, whatever that looks like. And that's just a miserable way to go through life, Shonda. It, it feels awful. And it's it's debilitating. It really leaves us feeling stuck and disempowered with nowhere to go. And I think this is something that so many clinicians, clients, parents, children, you name it, are struggling with. And self-compassion is kind of the opposite. It's its noticing, really turning that perspective of non-judgmental awareness on ourselves mm-hmm. when we're suffering. Oh, I'm having a really hard time. That was a really uh, unskillful moment. I, I made a mistake. I, Mm. I said, or did the wrong thing. And then noticing when, if we go to that place of really beating of ourselves up, that really sort of self-deprecating place. And instead of following that voice or believing those thoughts, instead we choose to treat ourselves with kindness. And in the book, I go, um, into really those, those factors of compassion, those really concrete practices, Uh, that make up self-compassion. Yeah. Okay. So I guess I'm sitting here thinking I'm a skeptical parent, kind of like, really? Okay. So my kids are driving me crazy. I'm losing it. I'm, you know, and self, how, how is self-compassion? How is this going to help? Because it just sounds too simple. (laughs) So you are describing me. (laughs) Several years ago, I have very vivid memories of being in a, you know, like kind of a gray drab conference room with this yucky gray industrial rug sitting on the floor, learning about mindfulness because I was trying to be a calmer parent. 
And the teacher started talking to us about self-compassion and putting our hands over our hearts and sending ourselves happy wishes. And oh my goodness, Shonda, I think I rolled my eyes so hard they almost fell out of my head. I was, just I was like, say, yes. you have got to be freaking kidding me. Like right. there is no world in which I'm going to stand somewhere and put my hand over my heart and send myself happy wishes. That's like <laughs> not a thing this type A uptight, you know, check the box mama does. And in all honesty, I, you still will never see me putting my hand over my heart <laughs> in that way because that's not my style, right? right? People who read my books and listen to my voice know that I tend to be a little snarkier, shall we say. <laughs> and, but the cool thing about self-compassion is that there's so many different ways to practice it. And the goal is to find the way that feels authentic to you. But mm. so if we talk about like, why would a busy parent who is overwhelmed and looking for a really effective strategy turn to self-compassion? Mm. Like why would they use some of their precious time and energy on this sort of weird, hippy dippy, feel good, ooey gooey practice? And what I would say to them is I feel ya. Uh huh. And this is actually an evidence-based practice that we know from really solid research, like by folks like Kristen Neff out of Texas and Christopher Germer in Massachusetts and a bunch of other folks, that when we practice self-compassion, we are actually more likely to change the behavior that has been troubling us than we would have otherwise. And you know, this has been researched in health-related behaviors such as eating challenges or um, smoking, that people who don't beat themselves up, who in fact respond to their difficult moments, their slip-ups, their falling off the wagon experiences with compassion are far more likely to make a better, more skillful choice next time. And the example I use with a lot of listeners that I think people can relate to, it's it's about you know dieting, which I actually don't love talking about because I think diet culture is toxic and doesn't work and is unhelpful, but for better, for worse, I think a lot of people can relate to this example. Mm. You know, let's say you just started a diet and two days later, you find yourself eating a couple of Oreos. And so you beat yourself up. You are a terrible dieter. You're never going to lose the weight. Everybody else can do this and you can't blah, blah, blah. The list goes on and on. So Shonda, if you've ever had a moment like this, let me ask you, you eat a couple Oreos you absolutely berate yourself. What's the next thing you do? Want more Oreos, man. Oh yeah, you finish that whole sleeve. It's down. <laughs> it's gone. Because why why not? You yeah, you have exactly. convinced yourself in that moment that you are a miserable wretch. Yes. You're never going to be good at this. So why not eat the damn Oreos, right? Yeah. So the alternative is imagine that same moment. You've eaten the Oreos. You you've broken your diet. And instead of beating yourself up, what you say is, you know, dieting is actually really hard for everyone. And not that many people are successful at it because it's so stinking hard. And it's okay to make a mistake. I don't have to be perfect to do a good job. I bet you can already start to imagine how much easier it would feel to put away the rest of the Oreos. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for parenting. When we can respond to our own painful moments, our own internal monologue with compassion, what I have found through my personal experience and also through my professional experience and through talking to other parents is we calm down, number one. You know, usually we have these really awful like moments where we're, we're just treating ourselves so poorly. Usually those are in the aftermath of a tense, difficult 
perhaps even explosive moment with our child. So self-compassion helps us calm down. The next thing is that it helps us see the moment clearly because often we're so clouded in that moment with judgment, Mm. with um, a real sense that we're failing, with sort of this overwhelming fogginess of I'm a terrible parent that we can't see what's going on clearly. Our thinking is too much. Perseveration, right? Perseveration on how terrible we are. Absolutely. We just get stuck in this thinking about how awful we are. We can't see anything clearly. But once we get calm and we get a little clarity on the situation, then we can start to parent more creatively. And, you know, we hear all these stories of these parents who come up with this incredibly clever ideas about, you know, stick a science, a trifold science poster in between your kids in the car seat so they can't bicker or (laughs) find a way to use these cool hot lava stickers to get your kid into the bathtub or whatever it is. And these creative moments make parenting so much easier and so much more fun And they're so unique and specific to every family Mm. and every family unit and the family styles that they really can't be taught. And we can't come up with them if we're buried in our own shame and blame Mm. and self-doubt and self-recrimination. But when we can sort of clear that out, treat ourselves with compassion, it'll be easier to come up with creative solutions to parenting challenges. Yes. And then the last reason why I think parents would want to practice compassion is it helps us feel more confident in our parenting. And you can imagine that if you went to a job that lasted, you know, maybe 200 hours a week, I actually don't know many how many hours are in a week, but let's just say 200. <laughs> and you spent the whole time working your butt off, like as hard as you've ever worked on anything. And every single moment of your day, there's this little gremlin following you around, telling you about all the ways you're screwing up, about all Aww. the ways you should be doing this better. And about how everyone else is doing it better than you. You can imagine that it would feel hard to feel like you were doing a good job, right? You would constantly be doubting and blaming and shaming yourself because that's the voice in your head. I quit. And basically. when we can let go of that, say it again. I quit. <laughs> I quit that job. You just want to check out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a terrible job. And, and that's, you know, so many of us do quit for moments at a time, right? Right lose ourselves in our phones or whatever it is because we just don't want to hear that voice anymore and so when we can get rid of that voice yes there will still be moments when you want to quit parenting for a little while because it's exhausting and hard and we all need a break but it won't feel so it won't feel like we're just constantly underwater it feels so much easier and more manageable when you're not constantly berating yourself yeah, just it feels like total drudgery the way you described it in that in that way. Oh my gosh, and which is it can be it can feel that way when we're doing this. And it's so it's it's the positive reinforcement that begets that's motivating, right? And it's the so it's negative um the negative feedback that we're giving ourselves over and over again, which we know is is the opposite of what motivates us. So, yeah, I just want to quit when you say all that. Ooh. Yeah, the negative feedback is exhausting. And the yes. other thing, Shonda, is that it's often not true. Right. We tell ourselves time and again that we are terrible parents for X, <laughs> mm-hmm. Y, and Z reason. And yeah, we all make mistakes. We all, you know, have moments where we're definitely not our best selves, not even close, where we interact with our children in ways we wish we hadn't. But that doesn't make us terrible parents. And it's not at all helpful to go around through our daily lives thinking we are. Right. And it's not true. Right. 
So, so do you recommend then if, so I'm just imagining if we have parents in our office, obviously they're coming for help and they want to get better, but if they're feeling like this, you know, okay, I hear, you know, there's research and you can tell me the reasons, but just, you say, just experiment, just try it out and see how it goes. I mean, is that part of this so that they can get a taste of it and then they are maybe hooked? So what I would say is, first of all, obviously it depends on the parent, what they're struggling with, um, because for example, my husband, and I do think Shonda, I don't, I don't have any research to support this, but I really think there's a gender divide here. Mm -hmm. And I do think women and mothers tend to be much harder on ourselves than dads and men and fathers do. Um, And I think part of that is about societal expectations. And I think there's a whole lot of other reasons we could go into, but um, obviously first you want to clarify is, is this something your, your client, the parent you're working with is struggling with? Now, if it is, what I would say to them is, you can go home and try it. And I pretty much guarantee you it's going to see weird and unhelpful at first. Right. Because it's kind of like speaking, learning to speak a new language is the way I think about self-compassion. This is not a language most of us grew up speaking, especially in the West, because our parents didn't speak it and their parents didn't speak it. It's not because our parents didn't love us. It's just that they never learned the language of self-compassion because nobody in the West was talking about this. And if any of you... If any of your listeners have ever tried to learn a new language, it's weird. At first, you know, it's hard to like find the words and they feel weird coming out of your mouth. And then the things you learn to say initially are generally totally not useful, right? It's like, I don't know, I'm doing this Duolingo app and learning to, you know, (laughs) practicing a different language. And the first thing it has me say is the king sees a way in this other language. How is that useful? Right. The king sees a way. I've literally never said those words in any language in my entire life. Right. And initially that's how it's going to, it might feel that way with self-compassion, like telling myself that other parents are having a hard time too. How's that supposed to help me? What's the relevance? Mm-hmm. And so what I say to folks is if this feels weird, unnatural, irrelevant at first, that's okay. That's mm-hmm. to be expected. Please right. don't give up. Right. Um, and the more you practice it, especially in your easier, non-stressful moments, because what I find is that when most folks, myself included, listen to sort of any expert advice, what we do is we listen to the advice and we think, oh, that sounds really good. I might try that. And then we wait until a moment when it feels like the world is falling down around us and we think, oh my gosh, what did that lady on the podcast say? And we can't remember because in moments of chaos and stress, our brains are so consumed with just the immediate moment and fight or flight or freeze or whatever that we can't think clearly, we can't remember new strategies, we can't, you know, if you're asleep and a fire alarm goes off, you're not going to wake up speaking the language you're still learning. You're going to speak your native language. And for so many of us, our native language is around self-contempt. So what I say to parents is practice when it's easy. And if you, as a parent, if your experience is anything like mine, your kids will give you opportunities to practice on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Practice when it's easy. And over time, it will start to feel more natural. Nice. That's great. I love that. And to be expected because, yes, it's almost like anything, not anything in therapy, but a lot of things in therapy. We talk about validation and couples therapy. It's just reminding me of that. You know, that's so, it feels so artificial and forced and uncomfortable initially. And then it becomes habit. And And as you're saying all this too, I'm thinking about how many people say to me, Oh, I, you know, they, they, you know, they come to therapy in their thirties, forties, fifties, whatever it is. And they're like, I 
we didn't learn this in my family and they think it's only them. They think everybody else kind of has this information. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like 99 point something percent of the population did not get this either. You are not alone. So I think that, you know, knowing, normalizing that too, that so many of us are walking around doing this. And um, even if we teach it and know it, we still do it sometimes. So absolutely. And one of the things I would say to my clients is this is not a you problem. This is a human nature problem. This is a married trying to raise two kids in the middle of a pandemic problem. Like this is not, because I think partially because this is how human nature works and partially because we are living in a society where what we see on social media is everybody else's best moment, everybody Mm -hmm. else's best moments. Mm -hmm. And what we are living our own worst moments, Mm -hmm. we're comparing those two as if they're comparable and they're not. And so then we end up thinking, oh, there's something wrong with me. And that just leaves us feeling so isolated and alone in the challenges of parenting when, in fact, so many of the challenges are completely universal. Even if the details differ a little bit, the overall hardness of it is so universal. Oh, so humbling, right? Being a parent and you were talking <laughs> yes, about that initially. Yes. You're just like, okay. Oh, I know Did nothing. not realize okay, how hard yes. this is going to be. Yes, yes. So, all right, let's talk about the the four evidence-based elements of self-compassion. Yeah, so this is how I think about it. And um, again, I want to remind all of your listeners that many people write about self-compassion brilliantly. And I encourage folks to find the perspective and the practices that feel like a match for you, for how you move through the world, for your style and preferences. But for me, what I think about is the first step for anything is noticing. Because if you don't notice how often you are engaging in self-deprecating thinking, self-deprecating self-talk, how often you're taking yourself down this spiral of shame and blame, you're not going to be able to make a different choice to behave in a different way. And the example I give to folks is a a friend of mine who um, texted me because her son, who was then in fourth grade with my daughter, was leaving his math worksheets like in a crumpled mess in the bottom of his backpack. And she sends me this sort of long chain of messages about how she found all these pages and they're a mess and they look like somebody set a fire in the bottom of his backpack and blah, blah, blah. And I'm reading all these thinking, yep, that's my kid. Yep, yep, <laughs> check, check, check. And then her last message was, I'm such a terrible mother. And she Whoa. didn't actually use the word terrible. She used yeah. the SH word that I use. <laughs> right. And had I read those texts eight years ago, I would have been like, yep, you're a terrible mother and so am I. Ha ha, nobody's getting the mother of the year mug here. But I read those messages a year ago when I was working on this book, when I was sort of neck deep in my own compassion practice. And I wrote back and the first thing I said was, you are under no circumstances a terrible mother. Mm -hmm. And she wrote back and was like, oh, I know, ha ha. And I think had I had the chance to really sit down and talk to her about it, she would have absolutely agreed that her 10-year-old son's horrible filing system was in no way a reflection of her parenting abilities. But the problem is when we repeat these phrases so many times over and over again, they just come out and then they kind of, it's like a terrible self-reinforcing cycle, right? Mm. So the first thing we got to notice is when we're saying and when we're thinking it. And then from there, we sort of have three choices for how to respond. And I think about connection, curiosity, and kindness as the three practices of self-compassion. And again, big shout out to Kristen Neff in Texas for her powerful research on this. Um, Connection, I think about a bunch of different things, but 
that's all in the book, but we can talk about here is really this idea of connecting to common humanity, which is reminding ourselves, doing whatever it takes to remember that we are not alone. Mm. Because the idea that we are the only ones who, insert your, you know, failing or fault here, is so painful, right? It's so debilitating. It's terrifying. It's overwhelming to think we are all alone in whatever it is we're struggling with, when the truth is we're just not. And you as a parent might be saying, oh, but you haven't heard my story. (laughs) And that's true, right? I haven't. But I guarantee you that you are not the only one who has felt the way you feel about parenting, regardless of the details. Sorry, interrupt. Say again? I I always find, too, that the people, the parents that we're working with who care enough to seek extra help or read a book or learn more are certainly the ones who care so much. And that's why they're, you know, so meaning... I think that's just evidence right there that you um, are still a great parent. Yeah. And I think that what I want to say to all parents is that what most of us, you know, 99.9% of what we see on television, on social media, on the news, on our friendship chats, it's just such a tiny sliver of reality. And sometimes it's not reality. I mean, Shonda, I watched, okay, I watched a whole two seasons. I'm not going to lie. I watched every episode of this reality show about a couple with 14 kids, 15 kids. And not once in any of the episodes did she lose her temper. Wow. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't buy it. Like, okay, Okay. let's be real. Half my brain was like, oh my gosh, there's a parent out there who has nailed this parenting thing and has a bajillion (laughs) kids running around and doesn't appear to have any childcare. How did she figure it out? What am I missing? Uh Uh-huh. And I could feel part of my brain like wanting to believe that. And I had to keep reminding myself, it's not reality. It's not reality. It's not Mm -hmm. reality. Nobody could parent 14 kids without help and not lose it. Right. 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 So so we have to remind ourselves that the challenges of parenting are so deeply human. The challenges of life are are so deeply human. We are so connected to the rest of humanity in those struggles and sadness and fear and anxiety and anger and all the things, right? It's what makes us human. It's not what sets us apart. So that's the connection piece. And when when you move from feeling like you're all alone to feeling like you are part of this like amazing and, and crazy and awesome and beautiful and terrifying, like, team of humanity just trying to raise the next generation there's something very it's light it lightens you there's like a Mm -hmm. burden that's released when you remember you're not alone so the first piece is connection the second piece is about getting curious with yourself because curiosity is fundamentally a deeply compassionate behavior Mm -hmm. because when we are curious with ourselves or we're curious about someone else what we're saying is you matter You matter enough that I am here. I want to learn more. I want to understand. I want to explore. And I'm not going to be scared of whatever you show up with. Mm, I, you can't frighten me away. I don't care what you say. I will not be horrified. I will not be ashamed of you. I will still be here with you. And that is such a gift. I mean, you know, Shonda, you and I were social workers, which means basically, we're professional curiousers. That's not a word. But you know what I'm saying? Like our job yes. is to cre- to be curious and to create a safe space where we can help our clients explore in a way that does feel safe. 
and and it's just inherently non-judgmental when we're curious there's no room for judgment so absolutely and you just feel that everybody feels that and what i would also say is that we just want to take a moment acknowledge that for some folks especially folks with a trauma history curiosity can be really scary Mm-hmm. right really scary feel really unsafe and if that's the case for you well good news you've got other practices you've got connection and you've also got kindness which we'll talk in a minute but that's when i would curious encourage those folks to really um, work on their curiosity with the support and guidance of a of a trained professional of a right. counselor a social worker a coach whoever it is that can kind of create that safe space because it, it, so, it can okay. at times be dysregulating. Yeah. Okay. So as practitioners listening to this, for practitioners listening, we should be cautious and, and uh, tread lightly around that, especially if we know there's a trauma background to really um, even be explicit about that with our clients, right? That this could, you know, we need to be aware that this could be triggering perhaps. Or yeah, how would you and- approach that more? So I am not, just to be clear, my background and my specialty are not in trauma. So mm-hmm. one thing I encourage clinicians to be aware of is, first of all, know your limits as a clinician, right? Know who you're mm-hmm. trained to work with and who you're not. And if you have a client that you think their trauma history is a big part of the formulation and what's going on with them, help them find the right treater, right? That's an important thing because I do get very skeptical when I see clinicians who say, I work with every challenge and diagnosis and problem. And I'm like, mm, but do you really? Yes. Right? Yeah, right. So knowing our limits as treaters is part of it. The other piece I would say is, again, start the curiosity piece can be so concrete and basic. So sometimes what I need to say, is, like when I am overwhelmed emotionally by a moment of parenting, I just stop and I'll, I'll put my hands flat on the kitchen counter And I'll say, what do I need right now? I need to take five deep breaths. Mm -hmm. I need to look around and like, just come back to the present moment, do some of my mindfulness practices. And the curiosity can be like, what, what is going on in this moment? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, what are my inner challenges and, and how are my, how am I being triggered? And how does this relate to what happened when I was eight? It's not that it's literally what is happening in this moment? What do I need? And then the really compassionate thing is to take your answer seriously. So, so a mm. lot of times we mothers or busy practitioners will say to ourselves, what do I need? Oh, I need a freaking break. Yeah. And then we think, well, that's never going to happen. And we blow it off. <laughs> exactly. Right. And then we get completely burnt out. Right. And so if in that moment of curiosity, what you realize is that you need a break can you put your kids in front of the TV for a show so that you can, please don't go to your phone. That's not going to give you the break you need. Can you go sip a cup of tea? My husband is learning to play ukulele. He goes and strums on the ukulele. I like to crochet because I'm like a little old lady ahead of my time. And so I go pick up a crochet (laughs) project. I try to do something that's going to calm down my nervous system. That's going to get me focused. That's going to help me be present. I go for a walk when I can. That's a Mm go-to strategy for me. But what are your... And all of these are about just being kind to myself in this moment, which is the next strategy, really mm. treating yourself with kindness. Yep. And so for me, giving myself a moment to engage in an activity that I enjoy, it's not about self-improvement. It's not about fixing myself. It's not about, you know, scrambling to find the answer to fix this problem for my kid. It's about acknowledging that I need a moment 
and then treating myself with the kindness of saying, you know what, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to drink this drink I really like. I'm going to pick up my crochet. Maybe I'm going to listen to my favorite audiobook for a few minutes. And bear in mind, dear listeners, that my kids are now 12 and 13. So they don't need the constant attention of like a two right. and three year old. Right. <laughs> so I realize that some of you may be listening to this and thinking, yeah, well, if I could crochet, I would have done that, honey. But right. my, you know, and so in that case, you know, if you can't in that moment get a break, can you reach out to your parenting partner if you have one or other people on your support crew, your friends, and just say, can we trade some childcare? You know, what, what, it, what is it that you need to do? And giving yourself that break is one act of kindness. And, and using if, that break again to take care of yourself, not to improve yourself, just right. take care of yourself. With that, with that self-compassion, again, that kindness. But what if somebody says, I don't know, I don't know what I need. Like, I'm just losing it, but I don't know what I need in that moment. Carla, help. So Shonda, that is literally what I said to my friends for two years during the pandemic. I could go back and find you all of the screenshot of text messages saying, I, I nothing is okay right now and mm -hmm. I don't know what I need, mm -hmm. right? Because what, like what is gonna fix the freaking pandemic? Nothing, right. there, is not, there is no fix to this. There is no fix to the overwhelm and the confusion and the fear and the anxiety and all the things. And so in those moments, just having, my friends on chat say to me, I don't know either, mm -hmm. was like such a gift. Mm -hmm. Having those friends that I could be vulnerable with and they could be vulnerable back and say, yeah, I don't have a freaking clue what's going to fix this. Right. And then when I don't know what else works, going back to basics, am I sleeping enough? Mm -hmm. I have become so obsessive about my sleep that I get in bed at like 8.30 most nights. And yeah, mm -hmm. I miss out on all the TV I watch. Sometimes the kitchen isn't clean. Sometimes work is undone. Sometimes the laundry is still in a mess on the, I, I, all I do is the laundry moves from the laundry basket at the end of the bed to the bed where I tell myself I'm going to go fold it. And then I don't fold it. So I just keep the laundry basket at the end of the bed. So I can just shove it right back in there because <laughs> I'm like, I need to sleep. Right. So I've become very serious about sleep. I go back to have I exercised enough because if I don't move my body every single day, I become dysregulated and anxious really. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. sleep, exercise, am I drinking enough water? You know, have I done some breathing today? Have I done a meditation? I go back to really the very basics of self-care mm -hmm. in those moments. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So if, so it can be just one of those simple things. If, if you're not sure what it is you need, pick something, almost like pick something that you know is sort of very basic and simple and, and loving for yourself. Absolutely. And also maybe just pick something you enjoy. Yeah. You know, like uh, one of the self-care practices that, you know, my kids would probably vomit in their mouths if they heard me call it a self-care practice, but I really saw it this way. Every night during the pandemic, our family either watched a hilarious TV show or played Mario Kart together. <laughs> and so the TV shows we picked were like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Recreation because I was very intentional that I wanted us to end the day laughing because mm -hmm. the pandemic was so hard yep. that I was like, I don't want to watch shows that are going to give me feelings that are going to remind yes. me of all the bad things in the world. I want us to laugh. And that really felt like such a kindness, right? Also Mario Kart, my family loves Mario Kart and it's like this bonding moment for us. <laughs> um, and so can you just do something you truly enjoy just for the sake of enjoying it and not feel bad about it? And mm -hmm. if, 
if you have a hard time, if you are feeling guilt, if this feels like an indulgence, just try to think about what you would say to your best friend. You wouldn't say to them, you know, how dare you work on your calligraphy? How dare you go play flag football? You should be home slaving over your children. Like you would never say that, right? And, and you wouldn't believe it either. You would say to them, go play ultimate Frisbee, go for a hike, you know, go listen to that jazz music you love so much, whatever it may be. And you would truly believe it. So why can't we also believe that for ourselves? Right. Definitely. Good. Good. Okay. And so that's the curiosity piece. No, that was the. And the kindness piece, really. I mean, the kindness is also about. Kindness and compassion. Yep. Yep. So it's, it's noticing, connecting, curiosity, and kindness. Got it. All right. Great. Talk about the four C's, calm, clarity, creativity, and confidence. Yeah, we, we sort of went over this earlier in the conversation, and I just see these as the real benefits for parents. And, and the, mm. the example I will give um, was I remember just years ago, my kids were like, my girls were like two and three years old, and they were sitting in the middle of the living room playing with their Barbie dolls. And they got in a fight over a crown. There was like one Barbie doll crown and they got in a fight over it and they were flipping out. And I had had a very long day and I was exhausted and I just couldn't handle it. And I think I lost my temper with them. And finally I calmed myself down. And I don't remember if I had compassion for myself at that moment because I think I hadn't even learned about it then. But somehow I calmed myself down and I took a deep breath and I just looked at the situation. And there in the middle of all the Barbie junk like the shoes and the little plastic purses and the weird little two small outfits and all the things I saw a second crown (laughs) it was just right there on the floor and the whole moment had probably lasted maybe 10 minutes that my kids were bickering and I got myself all worked up and I exploded and they felt bad and then I felt ashamed and we went through all this chaos of like blaming and shaming and blah, 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 that totally could have been avoided if I had taken a moment and just noticed there was actually a second crown, Mm -hmm. right? But that was, I needed to get calm and I needed to be able to see the situation clearly, which is really what mindfulness helps us do, right? Compassion Mm -hmm. is a fundamental practice of mindfulness. And when we come into the present moment, when we can notice the insane ramblings of our mind, the out of control spiraling thoughts, And kind of let those go and come back, take a breath, come back to the present moment, look around. Sometimes that second crown is there. Not always, right? Not always. And if it was, gosh, parenting would be so much easier than it is. And sometimes (laughs) there's no second crown. There's just an awareness that the crown is broken and it's never going to be fixed. And we got to kind of figure out how to help our kids muddle through the rest of the day or the week or the semester, whatever, without that second crown. But can we have compassion for ourselves in the process? Because when we can, when we can help our minds kind of let go of the blaming, shaming, I'm a terrible parent thought spirals, again, we can calm down, think more clearly, help our kids come up with creative solutions and feel more confident in our parenting. Yeah, definitely. And I'm thinking too, like even before the blaming, shaming is that often for me anyway, feeling of helplessness. It's this feeling of helplessness and overwhelm of just like, 
like I'm emotionally flooded and 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 I'm helpless with what to do with it. And that's where that that noticing and the calming a little bit can help us think more creatively, like you're saying, or see what's there or be creative and how Absolutely. come up and with I another think- solution. It's, it's so true, Shonda, and I think that there are a couple things going on when we get flooded. For some of us, there is a trauma history that leads to that sort of trigger and flooding. For some of us, there's an anxiety piece that's very real. I know it is for me. That's my big challenge is figuring out how to notice when, I, when my anxiety is triggered and either let it go, calm it down, or say to my husband, I'm too anxious. I I need to calm myself down. I cannot parent in this moment. And I will tell you, Shonda, the big one for me was at playgrounds. Um, Mm. I have one kid who's a real climber and that was a massive trigger for me. And I tried to manage it. And finally we got to a point where I would say to my husband, I'm going to go down to the coffee shop. You are on kid patrol at the playground because, and I realize this is a real privilege of having a parenting partner, but I, um, I did not want to parent my children on the playground from a place of anxiety. Mm-hmm. I believe children should be allowed to climb. Correct. And Just not I knew I couldn't do it. And I was like, <laughs> I can spend years in therapy managing this, or I can just hand it over to my husband. That's right. Right. And now we're past that. And I still have a kid who loves to do the ropes course and all the things, but at least now she's wearing a helmet and she's like strapped into a harness. And so I think that, you know, um, noticing that feeling of helplessness and overwhelm and sometimes trying to work your way through it and sometimes just saying this is not my parenting moment if you mm-hmm. can do that mm-hmm. you know can I sign my kid up for a climbing class or find somebody else to take her to the playground because I know I'm going to be micromanaging her the whole time and I don't want right. to right um is is a powerful choice yeah. you know we can't be everything to our kids we just can't we can be some things to our kids some things our kids will never get right and Either they'll never have them or they'll find their way to them as adults. And some things maybe we can have a family member or a friend or a community member or someone we pay teach them. But as my wise grandmother who raised seven kids told me, we can't teach our kids everything. Mm, that's so good. We I just love can't. that. And I and always that's say, okay. Yeah. I always say to parents too, good enough is great because I think, and I, and I just, you know, there's that, like you said initially, there's this collective sigh of relief almost when we take ourselves, we take those expectations, impossible expectations off the table and just kind of like our intentions are good. We're doing the best we can. And that's going to have to be enough. Um, And that is the compassionate voice, right? Mm -hmm. Shonda, what you just said. And I think one of the factors in our culture that really sort of is constantly pushing up that compassion is this false notion that there is an answer. Whatever the problem is, there's somebody out there telling you there's an answer for it and that there are parents out there who have figured this out and who are parenting, for whom parenting is easy and they do it gracefully and their kids eat the vegetables and their kids put on their shoes the first time they're asked and their kids don't wipe their boogers on their wall or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I call baloney on that. I That is not true. It doesn't exist. It's not humanity. It's not parenting. It's not child raising. Parenting is hard for every single one of us. It's hard in dramatically different ways, depending on our own internal and external resources as parents and depending on our kids and the kids we got and the resources and style and temperament personality they have. And there's so many different ways for parenting to be hard. 
but it's hard for all of us. And when we as parents can start to remember that just because it's hard, that doesn't mean we're doing it wrong. It's just the nature of the beast. I mean, if someone said to me, oh, you should go run a marathon. And by the way, it should be easy. Like when you, when you, if you train well, running a marathon should just be easy. It should not be challenging. So if it's hard for you to run the marathon, then you're doing it wrong. I would be like, you're full of it. And that's a lie. And I know it's a lie and get on my face. But if some, but that message is actually being communicated to all of us about parenting in really subtle ways. And it's just not true. So it's on Mm -hmm. us as parents to the best of our abilities to notice when that message is sneaking its way into our consciousness and be like, I'm out. I am not believing that it's not true. Right. Right. And which, so you're talking about the big lie that you mentioned. So, you know, kind of say what that is exactly. What is the big lie that we buy into this? Yeah. I think the big lie is that if we are doing parenting, right, it will be easy. Mm -hmm. And if it's not easy, it's that we're doing something wrong. And for sure, there are, I am certain there are always like little strategies and tweaks and hacks that we could be doing in our daily life that will make certain aspects of parenting easier. Like I heard a story and I will tell this story until I am old enough to not be able to remember it because I think it's so brilliant about a dad who literally had his kids do drills on the weekends, practicing putting on their shoes, putting on their jacket, putting on their backpack over and over again on the weekend so that, you know, in the mornings they would be able to do it. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant, right? And that probably, I would hope, made their mornings easier. So sure, there are always little hacks and strategies and ways to make these small moments easier. But at the end of the day, being a human, whether you have kids or not, is really freaking hard. And you had kids in the mix, It's always going to be hard. And I wish one of my many wishes for all parents is, well, universal childcare and healthcare, but also (laughs) that you would know that it's okay for it to be hard because that's, it's like gravity. That's just how the world works. Parenting is hard. You know, our chairs don't fly, fly up to the sky because of gravity and parenting is hard. Yes. There you go. Two universal truths right there. So what is snafu when you're talking about the big lie? Oh, um, Again, so SNAFU is a term that, if I'm not mistaken, comes from the military. It's an acronym. And it stands for situation, normal, all effed up, right? (laughs) So it was a way of describing, oh, well, once again, things are a colossal mess. And it's one of my favorite acronyms because of the first two letters, situation, normal, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of folks get hung up on the AFU part, the all effed up part. And they're like, oh, it's all effed up. And I'm like, no, no, that's not the point. The point is that when things become a total mess, that's normal. Chaos is normal. It is the expected state of affairs. And for those of us who are type A anxious control freaks who, you know, spent the early years of our adulthood in a fairly predictable progression of college, graduate school, get a job where you knew what was coming next. And most of the people you were interacting with were adults with functioning prefrontal cortexes. And you could, things were sort of, I mean, especially in the clinical world, things aren't always predictable, but you know, there was a certain sense of predictability, of control, of if I do X, then Y will happen. And also if I'm not doing things right, I can 
talk to my supervisor. I can go get some, you know, continuing education. I can learn more. And if I take these steps, I will be successful. So we take that perspective into parenting oh, yeah. and think, okay, so if I'm a good parent, my children will behave well. They will behave in predictable, appropriate ways. And the flip side of that other big lie is that if your children are not behaving well, if they are not, you know, progressing along the expected developmental progression, if they are not um, moving through the world in a way that resonates with how you think things should be done, then you're a bad parent, right? That's the flip side. And it's, it's a really, it's, it, it's not true. And that stinks because I wish it was true, right? Right. But we, those of us, and I think this is, you know, we know that women are tending to have kids later in life. And it used to be that you went straight from high school to college if you went to college, and then you became a nurse or a bookkeeper or a teacher, whatever limited careers women were allowed to go into. And then you became a mother. And the expectation was always that you would become a mother. And then when you became a mother, you actually became a housewife because your job was to take care of the house and the kids were a little feral and that was fine. And now we are stay at home moms and we Mm. treat it like a profession. Mm, Yeah, for sure. Except for we're like professional monkey wranglers and monkeys (laughs) don't behave in particular ways. And if you as a parent are offended by the fact that I sort of just referred to your child as a monkey, you know, I didn't mean that. But what I mean is that we're trying to wrangle chaos into submission and it's not possible because chaos is the anticipated normal state of affairs when you're raising kids. It's just kind of part of the package. And for those of us who don't like chaos, that stinks. (laughs) It's hard. Yeah. It's certainly a learning curve for sure. It's so hard and it's something to adjust to and to have a whole lot of compassion for ourselves uh, when it feels that hard. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I'm, I was wondering as you were talking, so, okay, if, if parents are, we're working, we're mental health professionals, we're, we're teaching our parents we're working with to use these practices, more self-compassion. And I was thinking about the in-laws and, you know, the, the stereotypical mother-in-law who might be like, you know, judging. Um, and is there, <laughs> I could imagine some things you might want to say to her, but what would you recommend a client would say if she if she's working on her own self-compassion and she has this outward sort of judging parent, mother-in-law, who, who you know, and, or whomever, somebody at the playground who decides they want to tell her how she should be parenting or she's not doing a good job or whatever that is. Yeah. So we all come across those individuals in our lives, whether it's our parents or siblings or aunt and uncles or, you know, other parents, other, you know, folks we meet at the playground or whatever, who are clearly judging us, right? Um, either through their words or actions or just the look in their eye. And in full disclosure, Shonda, I was one of those parents. I was so <laughs> judgy for years. I could judge any parent for any parenting decision. I was like Olympic level judger. And before you had you, kids, come probably, on. right? What? Before you had kids, probably, right? <laughs> no, no, no. It was after I had kids. And oh, I'll tell okay. you where it came from. Before okay. I had kids, I didn't know what, what to think about any of it. Okay. I was like in okay. my own little young adult world of like free time and what other people without kids do. I don't know what people without so kids annoying. do. I don't even yeah, remember no. what I did before my daughters were born. No, no, no. It 100% came from my own self-judgment. Yeah. 
I was just so overflowing with judgment about myself that it just leaked right out of me and all over everybody else. And anytime I felt like someone was judging me, whether or not they actually were, but I always felt like they were because I had, it was like I had these self-judgment buttons all over my body just waiting to be pushed. And anybody just literally like turned their head at me the wrong way and they would push that button because I was so vulnerable because it was so much of how I was understanding my own parenting, right? Mm-hmm. And once I started practicing self-compassion and and really practicing letting go of that judgment, I found that two amazing things happened. One is I was so much more generous and kind with my understanding of or my exploration of what was going on with other parents. So in the past, if I saw a kid behaving poorly or being rude or out, you know, misbehaving, let's say in a public space, I would be like, oh my gosh, that parent is terrible. They don't know how to manage their kids. They're not, they don't, they don't have control of their children. They're not t- blah, 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 blah. And after I started practicing my own self-compassion, most of the time I would be like, okay, yeah, that's happening because that's life. Like I just wasn't, I wasn't interested in judging other people, mm, but if for yeah. some reason my curious brain felt a need to understand or explore, or try to make sense of someone else's behavior, what I found myself doing is saying, huh, I wonder what else is going on for them. I wonder if that parent didn't get any sleep last night. I wonder if that parent has a mortgage bill they can't pay and it's really stressing them out. I wonder if that child has um, is worried because their parents are getting a divorce or just started a new school or has a difficult transition. Or maybe that child just got a diagnosis that is scary for them. Like I just, I found myself having these much more generous speculations because I'm a mm. speculator. What can I say? When the truth is, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, it doesn't matter what I think about other people's parenting. And, and I also found myself much more resilient in the face of other people's judgment. Mm -hmm. So if I felt like other people were judging my parenting, it became much easier for me to see and truly believe that their judgment wasn't about me. It was about them. And the thing is, I know we say that to our kids and I've got, like I said, a 12 and 13 year old who live in the middle school cesspool of judgment Right. And I can say to them, it's not about you. It's about that other kid. But until they really internalize the self-compassion that I'm trying to model for them, Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to believe that. The other thing I would say to parents is if you can start to notice the people in your life who are consistently judging you, how can you set up some boundaries around that? Because I understand that it would be great if we could all just have this like magic invisible shield that could deflect the judgment. But if it comes at you too often, it's really, it's hard to keep doing that. It just Mm -hmm. is. And so if there are parents on the playground that you always feel judged around, can you just go to the other side of the playground? Can you, you know, if your kid is running around the playground, can you open a book? (laughs) I mean, you might seem it's hard to do. It's not easy what I'm suggesting. And I know that, but is there some way you cannot be around those folks? And when it's family members that it's harder to set boundaries with, one of the things I recommend is anticipate that it's going to happen. Make Mm -hmm. yourself a list and check it off. You know, we've all heard about kind of Thanksgiving bingo, Shonda, you know, when you know you're going into a family holiday, you know that, you know, great aunt Sally is going to say something horribly racist. You know that, your sister-in-law is going to comment on your weight. You know that, you know, your aunt is going to comment on your child's behavior. And when you can kind of 
make yourself a checklist or a bingo card, then all of a sudden it just kind of becomes a game. It's not about uh-huh. you. You knew Uh it was going to happen no matter what you showed up with. But there are a bunch of strategies that clinicians and parents can utilize together to try to mitigate some of that judgment. But man, it's, it's not easy. We live in a world where I feel like often it's just free reign on parents. Let's just go judge the crap out of them. And I, I am not a fan, not a fan. But I agree. And I think when, when we are practicing these skills around our own parenting and ourselves, then it just, it can't help, but seep out a little bit too and it just affects how we perceive all sorts of situations so that's absolutely a great reminder yeah so tell us about the first second and third ar- arrows and guilt and shame and our kids just a tiny topic. so yeah, just a little topic so i i would love to take um credit for these ideas but they actually come from their buddhist teachings and I just want to say that in the book, I write about them with a fair amount of sort of uh, humor and lightheartedness. But I do want to take a moment to acknowledge that these are, I don't know if Buddhists consider their teaching sacred, but I I do consider this a, a really kind of holy teaching and idea because it is so powerful. So mm. the Buddha spoke about sort of the first and second arrows of life. And the first arrow are all the things that happen to us. Um, whether it's our house getting flooded, which I know is happening to many Americans, or we're being burned out of our house, or a child fractures a leg, or somebody gets a diagnosis, or our car breaks down, and we have some really expensive repairs, or we get laid off, and we don't have enough money, or we crack a tooth, like whatever it is, things happen in life. We don't we don't get the job we applied for. Our child doesn't get into the private school we wanted them to go to. Like what, you know, we can't access the resources we need painful, unhelpful, scary things happen in life that make things worse. We get a kid who doesn't sleep through the night or takes two years to potty train or whatever it is. These are all the first arrows of life. They're just the things that happen to us. And what the Buddha taught is that right after that first arrow, so often there is a second arrow, which is the way we understand what happened, the way we make sense of it. And so often we blame ourselves. It's the shame and blame. If it's the, if I had been a better parent, this wouldn't have happened. If I had done something differently, I could have prevented this. If I had, you know, signed up my kid up for summer camp earlier, they wouldn't have gone to the bad summer camp where they fractured an ankle or what. I don't even know what it is, Uh but it's the way we sort of put ourselves at the center of the moment in a not kind way and expect that we should be able to prevent or fix all of life's problems. And if we haven't, it's cause we did something wrong. So that's mm-hmm. the second arrow. And the third arrow, which I think was added on after, I don't think that was part of the Buddha's original teaching is what we think of as the arrow of denial and distraction when it's, it's all just become so painful that the combination of the first arrows of life and the second arrows are so painful that we just check out. And whether that means checking out into alcohol or drug use or internet addiction or staring at our phones or gambling or shopping or whatever it is, we're just gone. And I don't want people to think that I'm saying you should never look at your phone or never go shopping or anything like that. But there is a line between when that is sort of a skillful, helpful break from reality and when it becomes a real problem. Mm -hmm. And so 
I feel like so many of, especially in the world of parenting, so much of advice out there is about fixing the first arrow problems. How do you get your kid to sleep through the night? What do you do when your kid is diagnosed with ADHD or a learning disability? Um, how do you get your kid to behave better? These are like first arrow problems. There's stuff that just happens in life. And that advice is super useful. Don't get me wrong. It's incredibly helpful and it does make parenting easier. The problem is there are a lot of first arrow problems in life and parenting that aren't fixable. We can't prevent them. We can't fix them. We just kind of got to muddle through with them and do our best to support each other and show up for each other with compassion until the moment passes, the grief passes, the, the problem is, is somehow resolved. And um, the way we treat ourselves when those problems, when those first arrows hit, that's a second arrow problem. And there's not a lot of writing about there out there about how to avoid stabbing ourselves with that second arrow. The first arrow was unavoidable. The second arrow is absolutely avoidable. And so this book is really about how to put down that second arrow, how to let it go, how to drop it to the ground and really tend to our wounds with kindness and compassion. And when we can let go of the second arrow, often the third arrow of denial and distraction kind of falls away because we don't need it anymore because it's not so painful to be in the present moment, to deal with the first arrows, right? So that's really the story of the first, second, and third anymore. arrow. Then we don't need therapists oh, anymore, right? We do, I'm just wouldn't kidding. Wouldn't that be amazing if we could work ourselves out of a job, Shonda? <laughs> but it would. I but, used to say that to my clients all the time. But in all seriousness, I think when we teach this, you know, from your book and all of this self-compassion, this huge piece, it really does mitigate so much of that third arrow piece that we um, as therapists are working through a lot of the time. So it's, you know, anyway, it's, it's, that's so amazing and crucial. So anything else you wanted to say about the first, second, third arrows? I think the only thing I would say is that it, it really is a practice. And by practice, what I mean is when we first start doing it, it's not going to come easy and we're probably not going to be very good at it. It's going to feel hard and confusing. And it's kind of like, you know, the three-year-old with the tiny feet who goes out on the soccer field and literally cannot get their little foot to make contact with that giant ball. Right. But then you keep showing up. You keep walking onto the field and practicing and trying and stumbling and falling and missing the ball and getting up and doing it again. And eventually you have a high schooler, you know, scoring goals during the championship games. And so what I would say to parents is keep, and, and to practitioners and to clinicians, keep practicing, keep showing up it's going to feel weird. You're going to wonder why you're doing it. And it is, and I've got all sorts of suggestions for how to practice in the book. And at the end of the day, it's, it is, and I don't say this lightly, it's, it's a life-changing practice. Self-compassion is. Definitely. I would 100% agree. So I think it would be great too for practitioners to, who are working with parents to have that book, to both be working through that book together. It could be a great uh, tool for, for sessions and homework, right? Outside of, outside of the office. Absolutely. And one of the things that I was thinking about when I wrote both these books, how to stop losing your beep with your kids. And also you are not a beepy parent. I'm just beeping myself there, Shonda. Um, Thank you. Is there's a lot of humor in these books. And I, I don't want these books to leave parents feeling any more ashamed or overwhelmed or guilty or uncertain. And I think humor in the offered in the spirit of compassion and kindness um, really helps mitigate that. So I'm hoping that clinicians will feel like 
these books not only bring some really useful information and practices, but also kind of a dose of levity that we all need right now. Great point. Great point. I always talk about that when I'm teaching any of mindfulness is the sense of amusement with ourselves because we can take ourselves so seriously, especially around parenting. I know, again, speaking from my own experience. And so anytime we can find humor and poke a little fun at ourselves and yet really obviously take it very seriously at the same time is huge and wonderful. So thank you. Thank you so yeah, much for that, being here. How can, that is a strategy. Yeah. How can people find out more about you and where can they find your books? Uh, everything is on my website, carlanomberg.com, and my books are available uh, in paperback and e-version and audiobook. Uh, you can pre-order the books from, the book is published, will be published September 27th, 2022. It's available for pre-order now at your local independent bookseller or wherever you like to buy books online. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carla. It was my pleasure. And thank you, Shonda, for everything you do for practitioners and for parents. Thank you. If you listen to the podcast and you would like to obtain continuing education credit hours from NBCC, please check out our website at therapeuticperspective.com. You will first need to click on the show that you just listened to, then the take this course button. From there, you will complete the payment process and attest that you listen to the show in its entirety. After the payment is processed, you will take a 10 question quiz followed by an evaluation so that we can better serve you. After these steps are complete, you will be given your certificate, which can be printed or stored on your therapeuticperspective.com account. If you need any help or support in the process, please email us at therapeuticperspectivepodcast at gmail.com. 